0: Vox Quick Hits
1: Dragon SpaceX, go for launch
0: 10 nine, eight, seven, six, five. Four, three, two, one, zero. In a world with many problems, one problem reigns supreme—the climate emergency. The stakes have never been higher. The odds of bipartisan agreement on this issue have possibly never been lower. But there's a new president in town, and he's hot for science.
1: We've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer.
0: It's Earth Week at Today Explained. We're going to talk about what's in store for this planet. The future of our future. Welcome to Earth. Week on Today Explained. It's Earth Week on Today Explained. I'm Sean Ramos from Yesterday on the show. We set the table at the Scorched Earth Diner. It was a vision of what our menus might look like in 2050. Today, we're going to spend a little more time talking about the steaks. New York Magazine editor-at-large David Wallace-Wells testified in front of Congress last week
1: on the steaks. In 2020, what was once called the novel coronavirus killed, according to the CDC... 350,000 Americans, according to new research, that same number, 350,000, die even in an unexceptional year from the air pollution produced from the burning of fossil fuels. Decarbonize, and we could save those lives. To be clear here, there is a lot of uncertainty. Putting that caveat front and center, now let's do it. Thank you. Deep breath. According to like the best analysis of current trajectories, we are basically in line for about three degrees Celsius of warming past pre-industrial levels by the end of the century, by 2100. At three degrees, we would be dealing with probably hundreds of millions of additional deaths from air pollution, from the burning of additional fossil fuels. We'd be talking about storms that once hit once every couple of centuries, hitting every single year in many, not just coastal parts of the world, but also places on rivers, we would be talking about migration crises in the at least tens of millions annual, uh, maybe hundreds of millions. Um, the UN says it's possible that we could get up to a billion refugees. I think those numbers are a bit high, but again, it's, it gives you a sense of the scope of the disruption that we're talking about, You know, especially in parts of, the, of South Asia and the Middle East. There would be hundreds of days every year in major, major cities uh, where you wouldn't be able to walk around outside without risking heat stroke. And you certainly wouldn't be able to work outside without, you know, for hours at a time without risking heat death. The economic impacts um, have been estimated, you know, as high as something like 25 percent of global GDP would be lost compared to a world without warming. Uh, Wars would probably more than double that the map of global illness would change dramatically as well because you'd start seeing especially mosquitoes that carry all these tropical diseases flying all the way up to the Arctic Circle. And so basically the entire globe, wherever humans lived, would be dealing with all of the diseases that have been for many centuries confined to the tropics. And that would be you know, not entirely unovercomable. It's not like if malaria is in Stockholm, that means that everybody in Stockholm's gonna die of malaria, but it does just totally change the, you know, again, the, the epidemiological landscape of the world. So it looks it looks really quite grim. You know, we we already all are living in a transformed world at one point two degrees. One point two degrees Celsius of warming doesn't sound like very much, but it already puts us entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history. So There have never been humans walking around an Earth as hot as this one. And everything we've ever known as a species is a result of climate conditions, which we've already left behind. And it's like we've landed on a new planet and have to figure out what that we brought with us, what of the civilization we brought with us can survive these new conditions and what will have to be adapted and what we're going to have to discard. And that's just today's temperature level. And that's temperature. And temperature is a lagging indicator. In spite of everything he just laid out, David is hopeful. Two
0: things that are giving him hope, believe it or not, it's the world's two biggest polluters,
1: the United States and China. A number of the world's biggest emitters, and maybe most significantly, China announced uh, pretty concrete plans to get to zero carbon.
0: The Covid-19 epidemic has enlightened us that mankind needs self-reform to speed up the formation of a green development mode and lifestyle to build a beautiful world with ecological civilization. China will make tougher policies and take more stringent actions to achieve the peaking of carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and strive to neutralize carbon neutrality before 2060.
1: Much slower than I would like but amounts to much, much more ambition at the sort of geopolitical scale than was really visible, has ever been visible on climate before. And maybe most importantly, or most intriguingly, most encouragingly, those commitments were made in calculations of national self-interest, which means that Japan and South Korea and many member nations of the EU, but the EU as a whole also, and China Um, And if you want to count Joe Biden's climate plan with it, too, like, you know, something like two thirds of the world's carbon emissions are now, quote unquote, on track to getting to zero. Not soon enough to get us below two degrees of warming, but um, soon enough to, you know, keep us on track to stay below about two and a half degrees of warming if all those pledges are honored. And as with everything on climate, it's a matter of perspective. Two and a half degrees is going to be really, really bad by the standards of world history but it's much, much better than four, four and a half, which is what we the track we thought we were on as recently as a year or two ago.
0: I think it was a year or two ago we last spoke and you sounded less hopeful. But I mean, because you're talking about pledges here and you mentioned Joe Biden, I have to ask, I mean, are these pledges so easily reversed that we shouldn't feel all too hopeful?
1: It sort of depends how you think about it. I mean, obviously they're worth a paper they're printed on, which is nothing. <laughs> But, and and I should say, like, in the history of climate action going back decades now, no pledge of carbon reduction has really ever been met. A couple of individual countries have hit a couple of individual targets, but even those have been really rare. And almost invariably, when someone or some group of nations pledges um, to cut their emissions, they fail. But, you know, the context is really different now than it was even during the Paris Accord negotiations in 2015 in the sense that renewable energy is just really, really cheap and it's getting much cheaper at an incredibly fast rate. So the IEA, the International Energy Association, which is a notoriously conservative body this year, called solar power the cheapest electricity in world history. Solar is the new king of the global Electricity markets. The cost of solar power has fallen uh, tenfold so in a decade. Of course, wind, onshore wind, offshore wind, growing very strongly as well. The cost of batteries, but which solar, are critical to sort of making renewables uh, a large-scale play rather than just a sort of a boutique um, energy source. Those. Costs have also fallen about tenfold in a decade, and that means that anybody who's making a hard-headed calculus about you know where to invest any country, I mean, sees the logic of a renewable future even from a sort of a naked cost-benefit um, analysis. We expect that even in the absence of major policy shifts, renewables alone will meet 80% of the global. Electricity demand growth within the next ten years. And then when you layer on top of that, the fact that there's been this global political awakening. Why do we want? Right? Why do we want it? Why do right? no. we want? Right? Right? Many more people all around the world are demanding action. Many more people are fed up with dirty energy and don't want to see to the extent that they can they can make a difference with personal demands and personal pleas. They don't want to see their own homes or even their own electric cars powered by dirty energy. Um, in that sense, the oil and gas business is sort of going the way of the of the tobacco industry. There's really been a huge amount of momentum sort of on all fronts. And I think it does seem to be the case that like once the economic logic changed, the whole world of possibility changed too. But, you know, that's not to say that it's like slam dunk game over. We're all in the clear. Honoring the pledges that have been made are those are going to be really, really hard. You know, to play our part as countries that have the highest per capita emissions in the world and are responsible for the lion's share of historical emissions means getting all the way to zero pretty quickly. And that is not going to be all that easy. There's the trajectories that are necessary to sort of get us on track to stay below two degrees and maybe even target 1.5 degrees, which is the stated goal of the Paris Accords. Those are really, really steep climbs. Um, But, you know, for the first time in climate history, the world seems to be trying to mount that. Let me call the hearing to order. Uh, Let me thank Ranking Member Graham, uh, our colleagues on this committee and our witnesses
0: uh, for being with us this morning. I mean, you testified in front of Congress last week and Senator Lindsey Graham himself opened his remarks by saying that he believes that climate change is real, uh, that human emissions create greenhouse gas effect that traps heat, and that you see a rise in the oceans and acidity in the water and <clears throat> droughts and disruption of weather patterns. That makes sense to me. Does that symbolize a shift away from climate denial? That that climate denial certainly won't ever be the mainstream position, at least in
1: our federal politics again? I think so. But, you know, it's there are a few different things going on there, but there's like what level of rhetorical commitment is a single Republican willing to make towards climate action? Then there's like, who else is with him? And I think it was notable that in this Senate hearing that I participated in, hardly any Republicans showed up. Hmm. Now, in previous years, they might have shown up and grandstanded on climate denial. So you can sort of count it as progress that they don't even want to touch this subject. So going from a world in which they saw it as a political win for them to fight climate action to them seeing it as so much a political loser that they don't show up, but not enough of a political winner to sign up to climate action that they don't show up for that. You know, we're making progress. We're just making, you know, the progress is too slow. But even on the Democratic side, you know, in general, I think almost no one appreciates um, how urgent the crisis really is and how... Urgent, the need for an energy transition really is. So, you know, these benchmarks are—they're often a little misleading, in the sense that, like, you know, the difference between one point five and one point six degrees is not may not even be noticeable at the global level. Um, but they're still useful as a way of marking our progress. And to keep global temperatures to one point five degrees Celsius, which you know, honestly, I don't think is possible. But to try to do it, which is the stated goal of the Paris Accords and really all of the environmental left, that requires global Decarbonization in about 15 years' time. And that means that the US would have to move even faster than that. That's just a timeline that does not seem credible or feasible to me. Now you can you can build it out a little longer with what are called negative emissions, which are ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere, some of them natural, like just forest planting, and some of them more technological um, carbon capture. But, you know, unless you're doing that at essentially a global scale, you're stuck with a with an oppressively short timeline. And I think everybody is like patting themselves on the back, certainly in that Senate chamber was patting themselves on the back for like being on board with the science and for having the business roundtable on board with the carbon tax and talking about how all your corporate donors are, you know, mentioning ESG investing. And those are all like in a vacuum. Good we're in a better world than we were five years ago without that momentum, but it's pathetic compared to the scale of the of transformation that's needed, which is like, really at the very least, we need to completely decarbonize the American electricity sector over the next decade or decade and a half. And I think there's a decent chance that we get a clean energy standard into the Biden jobs plan. Um, But when all is said and done, which would accomplish that, that also will be an uphill battle. And it only amounts to, you know, an impact on, on again one slice of that of that carbon problem of of which there are many
0: That was an excerpt of Today Explained to hear the whole enchilada and others like it. Check out Today Explained wherever you check out your podcasts.